So let me begin by apologizing to any of you who are my Facebook friends for something I did last night, which is very unlike me, but nonetheless, I did it. And if if, uh, you were not up really late, you probably still don't know. And you're wondering now, what exactly did you do? This is what I did. I don't know, it was like midnight or one o'clock. And from a trusted source, I got a, a Facebook message saying, if you, I suggest you become a fan of Ikea. And if you become a fan of Ikea, you get a $1,000 gift certificate at Ikea. Now, two things. Number one, I trust the friend who, at this point, I believe was duped. But I trusted Ikea. I mean, it's Scandinavian furniture. How can you not trust them? How could they do this to me? This is what they did. So I waited because I am suspicious. You know, I'm always looking for the hidden agenda. As I've told you, if you have an agenda with me, just tell me. I'd really rather hear it from you than, you know, we sit down and you really had something else you want to talk about. Just tell me up front. I don't like the hidden agenda. I like the actual agenda. Anyway, what the IKEA thing was is you, you, you click on it and, and they're having me do a few things. And the first thing they have you do is you got to, all you got to do is, all you got to do is suggest to your friends that they become fans. And I thought, because I like you all, and I don't want to irritate you, and I thought, well, I mean, I get lots of things on Facebook. They suggest to become, I become a fan of things, and I ignore a good many of those. And so you can ignore it, right? And so click. And then it began. 90 minutes of hell had I let it. <laughs> skip, 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 skip. Now, the last thing I have to do, the only thing I have to do is click two of these offers. And then I click away from that. And now the only thing I have to do is click nine offers. Just, okay, that's not nine. Nine offers. And if I click nine offers, then I'll get $1,000 at Ikea. It's at this point that I shut the whole process down. Ikea, apparently, I think it's Ikea. I mean, maybe somebody was using Ikea. But there was a hidden agenda there. And I knew better. I knew better. Because I always assume, nothing. don't take anything at face value. Somebody is trying to, there's always a catch. I think if we're honest, that's how many, perhaps many of you, have felt about Christianity. Okay, what's the catch? You talk about heaven, what the hell is heaven? <laughs> really? There's some spiritual concept about, hey, I got this great offer for you. Where, where's, the, where's the actual validity to this. You know, where are homeless people getting homes and hopeless people getting hope? You know, really, what are you talking about? And then you get a phrase like this from Jesus. We're going to look at it later where he says, I came to give you life and life to the full. And I really, I have the same reaction. What do you you mean, life to the full? I mean, how vague can that sound? I'm going to give you life to the full. How do I know when it's empty? How do I know when it's half full? What exactly is life to the full? And what do you really want from me? See, I think we've been trained, everything in our experience tells us this, that there's nothing free here. That Christianity, really, maybe it's got something it's offering me, but there's a catch. There's something I've got to give. There's got to be a trade-off. There's no free lunch. There's something involved. And some of you, you came here and you have not been really interested in Christianity or spirituality or anything like that until recently. And you came to a point of going, whatever, I'll even try this. But you believe that what is probably being offered to you is, I don't know, maybe a sense of meaning and satisfaction that you didn't have. And 
maybe a few more relationships, maybe even a date. You know, something will happen here, but you honestly believe there's a catch. That God will give you something, but you're damn sure going to pay for it, one way or the other. Christianity is uncommon. It's not what we expected. And yet we bring into it notions that change what it is. I think most of us still walk around believing that there's a catch. And Jesus spent much of his life trying to not so much convince, but live in a way that showed people an entirely different way of living that was uncommon, unlike anything that they'd ever seen, that was intended to break their misconceptions of what God exactly wanted from them. What does God want for you? He wants to give you life. And I'll actually explain what that is in case you're saying, what the hell is that? I'll actually explain what that is. God wants to give you life. And I'm going to reiterate this. There's no catch. Seriously, there's no catch. I've told you before, if I have an agenda, I'll tell you up front. Like if you're not in faith, my agenda is for you to get in faith by the end of this time. Seriously, no, no bones about it. That's what I'd love to see happen. The, present, the presentation that God makes in the Bible is that I come to give you life and there's no catch. None. Don't have to earn it. Don't have to work for it. But what I'm offering you is quite different than what you expected. And that's what we're going to look at today. We're going to look at, see, Jesus, we're going to look at his life before we look at his death. We're going to look at his death next week. And then after that on Easter, coincidentally, we're going to look at the resurrection. And in case you laugh, we don't always do that. <laughs> but this year we will. And we look at the life. I think sometimes this is what we think about the life of Jesus. Jesus came and he lived the life that we're supposed to live. And since we couldn't do it, then he died for us. As if there's a breach between his life and his death. He did his life, you know, and that was great. But now we can't really pull that off. I know you really can't really pull that off. I was trying to set a bar for you that you couldn't really reach so that you'd see that you needed a savior to die for you and I'll die for you and then you'll be forgiven. His life and his death are like totally different things. In my opinion, they're not. They're one piece. His Death on our behalf was not something that he had to do because the life didn't work out. It was a natural byproduct of who he was. That his heart is good, pure, and absolutely for you. I'm going to look at a passage in one of the Gospels, John chapter 10. And I'm going to give you a little bit of context for it. John chapter 10 is a metaphor that Jesus tells about shepherding. And I know you don't have great experience with shepherding. I'm guessing none of you have sheep. But nonetheless, it's a pretty simple metaphor, which Jesus makes a little more complicated, honestly. And it's a, it can be a little bit tricky, but it's, it's a fascinating picture of what he's trying to get across to us about who he is and who he is toward us. But the previous chapter, now whether this happened chronologically before, it's not really important. It was clearly put together in order to demonstrate. Here's what got, happened in John chapter 9. Here's how Jesus views us. What happened in John chapter 9 is there was a guy who was blind and Jesus thought he'd heal him. He had the power, figured, hey, why not? Let's let him see. And it was the Sabbath. And in that culture, the religious leaders would say, on the Sabbath, you're not supposed to do anything, nothing, unless you create some clever little rules that allows you to get around not doing something. You can still do something. But barring that, you're not supposed to do anything. And so Jesus didn't seem to care that it was the Sabbath. He cared, apparently, that the person was blind and thought, let's not have him blind another day. Like he didn't think, hmm, Saturday, uh, he can be blind for Saturday. I'll heal him on Sunday. He thought, crazy, I'll go ahead and heal him now. I think he thought people might be happy about that. The guy was, but others weren't. 
And what happened was there were people that they, he was he was excited. I mean, really, think, picture it. He was blind. Now he sees. Woo! He's excited. And so then some religious leaders going, "Wait a minute! It's Saturday." Not any works going on. And this guy is jumping around, excited. I want to know what happened. He got healed. Who is this lawbreaker that would dare to heal him on the Sabbath? And so it's really pretty funny. You should go back and read it. They, 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 they pull him forward. And then they first start saying, you know, there's a guy who was blind who looked an awful lot like you, but it couldn't be you. And he goes, no, no, that was me. And they really don't believe him. So they bring his parents in. Seriously, it's right in there. He brings his parents in and they go, this isn't really, no, this is my son. You know, I'm sort of, has he been faking all these years? No, he was blind, and now he sees. Oh, wait, we can turn that into a hymn. Anyway, he, now he sees. And so then they go, okay, how did this happen? He goes, look, I really don't know. He did some thing, put it in my eye, bam, I'm, I can see now. And they was like, but you know, he's a lawbreaker, and so he can't be from God. And honestly, the guy who was healed was a bit quizzical. <laughs> he thought, Look, I don't really know what he, where he's from. What I know is I was blind and now I see. They get mad at him and they toss him on his ear because he's now supporting a lawbreaker. Now this seems crazy to Jesus. And so he tells this metaphor of the good shepherd in the next chapter, I think to speak to that. Religious leaders who are putting heavy burdens on people as opposed to what he wants people to see. No pun intended. I tell you the truth. The man who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate, but climbs in by some other way is a thief and a robber. The man who enters by the gate is the shepherd of his sheep. The watchman opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name, and he leads them out. When he has brought brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them. And his sheep follow him because they know his voice, but they'll never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. If you're not really sure what he's talking about, you're in good company. Jesus used his figure of speech, but they did not understand what he was telling them. It was a pretty typical way that Jesus is teaching him to go to his disciples. He tells them something, they go, I'm not sure what you're you're getting at. But he's saying, he's like, look, there's a gate, right? There's a pen. There's sheep inside of it. If somebody is climbing over the wall, that means they really don't belong there. And they don't care about the sheep. They're actually trying to harm them. The one who enters by the gate is recognized and he's known. He's the one who actually cares for the sheep. But they don't quite get his point, so he goes on. He apparently is going to make it clearer, but he changes the metaphor and actually makes it, in my opinion, slightly more complicated. Therefore, Jesus said again, I tell you the truth, I'm the gate for the sheep. See, that's where it's interesting. He said again, he didn't say that the first time. He didn't say I'm the gate the first time. He said, before there's a shepherd. Now he said, I'm the gate for the sheep. All who ever came before me were thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I'm the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. He will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. And this is the verse... I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. It says it's really important that you understand something. Is that I am the way that people, sheep's a metaphor, that people enter a place where they experience the life they were supposed to. They go in, they go out, they find good pasture, they're cared for, they're kept alive. There are others throughout the world Jesus would seem to say, who were not so caring for your soul. 
they may appear at times to be caring. They may put on the outfit, but they don't actually care for your soul. And then he takes it further and says, I'm, I'm the good shepherd. I need my glasses to read the rest. I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd who owns the sheep. So when he, he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man who runs away because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. The life of the shepherd automatically leads to that he will lay down his life for the sheep. Why? Because he cares for them. Jesus uses a very simple metaphor in the end to say, look, I'm going to lay down my life for you. Why? Because I care for you. There's no other sentence. We really think there's another sentence. I'm going to lay down my life for you. If you prove yourself worthy, I'm going to lay down my life for you. If you can keep to a good path, I'm going to lay down my life for you. But I'm not that thrilled about it. Just got to do it. Because you incompetent sheep can't pull off life by yourself. There's no other sentence. I'm going to lay down my life for you. Why? Because my heart is good. And I care for you. See, the life of Jesus was one where he did what appeared to be crazy things. Somebody was ostracized from society because she'd been married five times and divorced five times and now she's living with somebody else and that really did not go over big in that society. And so he's ostracized. So what does Jesus do? He becomes her friend. He goes and has a conversation with her and he reaches out to her. There's somebody who had been stealing from people all their life called a tax collector and what does Jesus do? Jesus calls him to himself. There are arrogant religious leaders and what does Jesus do? He doesn't do what I would do. I write them off and I ignore them. I'm dismissive of them. Maybe I'll talk to you about them. He talks to them about them. And he challenges their arrogance and their self-righteousness. He seems to never get to the place where he goes, it's six o'clock. I've been caring for these irritating people for the last eight hours. I'm off. I mean, how much more do I have to do? Look, have I been a decent savior today? I talked to a number of people. Hey, it's a, a little bit of me time. I just need a little Jesus time. <laughs> and then tomorrow, maybe I can get up the will to wade in with these people again. Yeah, it sounds crazy. I really think it's how we think. I really think this is what we think Christianity is. We have this non sequitur. Okay, Jesus died for me. Okay, I'm forgiven. And now I'm supposed to live my life pretty good. And so, I'm going to care about people for as long as I can pull it off. And then, how about a little me time? I mean, actually, doesn't this sound reasonable? What if 
I mean, we had some people here yesterday. Where they were putting our whole upstairs back together. I know it doesn't look fully back together if you've been up there, but trust me, it should seem what it looked like beforehand. And it's as much as we can do at this point. Anyway, they work there you-know-what's off, and they've done it several weeks in a row. Don't they have a right at the end of that time to say, hey, I just gave three hours to God. So now, hey, it's all me time. I mean, that sounds completely reasonable. Why does it sound funny when we have Jesus saying that? Because intuitively understand there's something different about him. He wasn't trying to be good. His heart was actually good. It's not that he didn't love himself. It's that he was a completely different sort of person who didn't have to try to be good. His heart was already there. And so when he saw somebody hurting, he didn't go, oh, shoot. Okay. He simply reached out to them. He somebody, saw somebody experiencing joy and, and he waited in. Seemingly without pretense and without fear, he just lived life purely before others. So what does that mean for us? Well, let me digress. It's really not a digression. It's more of, Let's go over here, and then we'll come back. Do you know that the first time the word bored was used was in the late 1800s in a novel by Charles Dickens? And then it did not come into common uses in England till, in, in English language until the late 1800s. Now, why didn't anybody discover until that point that they were bored? I'm pretty convinced that the 5th century was not that exciting. Not a lot of decent restaurants, you know, couldn't watch a movie. I'm pretty convinced that it wasn't that exciting in the 5th century. So why did it take the 1800s for people to discover that they were bored? Because boredom is a different thing than having nothing to do or being tired or not being exciting. The concept really comes from a place where my life gets centered on me. That's where the root comes from. My life becomes centered around me. And what happened in that period of time was with the Industrial Revolution and profits and a whole leisure class developed that suddenly had way too much time to focus on themselves. And so now they had leisure time to fill with them. And they didn't have quite the level of stuff that we do today. We're still bored, but we can go to movies if we're bored. We can go out to eat. We can watch 52 hours of basketball, theoretically, over the weekend. Because when we get to the center of our lives, even when we're reaching out and doing some good stuff here and there, when in the end our life is revolved around who I am and how happy I can make me, I end up bored. Because that's not enough life there. And so now we have the bored self and we have the stressed self and we have the apathetic self and the complacent self and the self-righteous self and the arrogant self and we have the self. And what you hear from that, I'm afraid is, okay, he's telling me not to be so selfish. I should really try hard not to be so selfish. Have you ever tried that? 
It's not so easy, is it? Because that's the other model of religion, which is you try harder to be a better person. And if you can pull it off 30% of the time, Jesus is totally different. He lives a completely uncommon life. He is alive. He's not bored. He lives life and life to the full. Why? His life does not collapse on himself. It's lived as it ought to be, engaged with the rest of humanity. Engaged with men and women. In connection. That was what life was always intended to be. It's not a thought process where I go, should I care about this irritating person for a little longer? I mean, really, sometimes I think to myself, it wouldn't be with any of you, I think to myself... How long do I have to have this conversation with an irritating person? Now, maybe you think that of me. I'm okay with that, really. And then I've done that. Have I done my duty? Now am I a decent human being? Jesus died for me. He forgave me. I should be a decent human being sometimes, as much as I can pull it off. And then what we do is we think Christianity is the process of approving a little more at being a little more of a decent human being. But still, our fundamental, our fundamental foundational premise is this. I give a certain amount away and I must keep a certain amount because if I don't, there'll be nothing left for me. And it's completely flawed and it's why we believe everybody has a hidden agenda and it's why the life of Jesus seems so uncommon. He seems to have no hidden agenda and he seems to simply live openly before the world around him. And I have to be honest with you. I like that. I would prefer that to being forgiven and trying harder. I would. I would prefer my heart to be free without pretense, leaning into the lives around me. I prefer not to go, do I really have to talk to somebody else again? Do I really have to do this? And that's what Jesus does. I promised two years ago To never quote from Lord of the Rings again. (laughs) It's gone. One of my favorite, favorite scenes is in, oh, now I can't remember whether it's The Hobbit or the first of the Lord. It doesn't matter. No, it's the the first book of the uh, trilogy where, okay, Bilbo's got the ring, right? And he needs to get rid of it. Because it's killing him. He thinks it's giving him life. If you don't know this, really, I can't go through the whole Lord of the Rings thing. You've got to have this much, right? It's killing him. It's sucking the life out of him with this hold on him. And Gandalf comes in and he says, have you, you need to put the ring away. Have you given it? Oh, huh. It's still on my hand. It keeps seemingly just showing up in his hand and he can't get rid of it. And at that point... Bilbo says, you're trying to defraud me. Why do you want the ring? And Gandalf appears huge before him. And he says, Bilbo, back it. And then he shrinks. And he says, I'm not trying to harm you. I'm trying to help you. We really think Jesus is trying to hinder us. That Christianity is a methodology that it might be the right way but it's the right way because it takes stuff out of our life. He's not trying to harm you. He's trying to make you alive. 
So what does that mean for you? For some of you, this is what it means. You are not in faith. And it bothers you if I would say that to you. Which I think would be a huge goal if you're not in faith. If you were to go, that's true. I have a, a student of mine who's German. He's from Germany. That's how you become German. <laughs> but I mean like just from Germany. Like, you know, this semester. And he, um, one of the things he said about the difference between being here and being there, he goes, nobody in Germany pretends to be religious. It's not a, it's not a socially acceptable thing. I mean, nobody goes, oh, oh yeah, I'm a Christian too. He goes, I, he goes, but here, people seem to do that. They seem to feel the need to say, oh yeah, well, I'm, you know, I'm, 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 I'm Episcopalian or I'm, I'm Methodist. As if, without saying that, they must not be a decent human being. Being Episcopalian or Presbyterian has nothing to do with being a decent human being. Okay, let's just pull that off. If you're not in faith, that's where you are. If you don't believe that Jesus has died for you, that he loves you, if you don't even believe there's a God, that's where you are. So live in that space. Because it's an honest space. But if that's where you are, if you are not in faith, this is the misconception I would love to see ripped out of your life. That God has a hidden agenda for you. He might give you a little bit, but he's going to take a lot. It's simply not what the life of Jesus nor his death shows. This is my challenge to you. If you're not in faith, if you're exploring, I'm challenging you to read any one of the four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. There are, we have Bibles in that back table, in case you don't have one. And read it. And what I think you will find when you read one of them is that there's something about the life of Jesus that is just so what I didn't expect. I expected religious rules and I got Jesus. Somebody whose heart is fully alive. And if you say, well, sure, but somebody wrote it to appear that way. Okay, then I want to know that person. Because it's written in a way we don't write. It speaks about our hearts in a way that we don't think. If Jesus isn't the Savior, then whoever wrote that is. Because they picture this uncommon view of life of somebody whose heart is full and is free. I challenge you to read one of those. If you're exploring, explore. What do you got to lose? You might actually find life. You might actually find the God who loves you so desperately that he lives for you, that he died for you, but only because he was already living for you. If you are somebody who is in faith, I have two challenges for you. I understand why somebody who's outside of faith would think that um, what Christianity is is a place where you have to sort of perform. You know, you've got to do your best and then maybe God will like you. But I, I'm, I'm more concerned that we as, as followers of Jesus still think that. <laughs> I live far too often sort of categorizing what I've done and whether or not it's been good enough and trying to ramp up my behavior and make it a little bit better. And trust me, there's plenty to make better. I'm not trying to diminish that. But it's not the point. The point is the change in my heart. The point is being completely different from the inside out, not being 30% better than I used to be. He came to make your heart free, not to make you perform a little bit harder. So, this week, and if you're not a, if you're not a, a writer, I mean, I'm giving, I've been giving examples in writing in the last couple of times, and I'm going to give you a couple of ways to do it, but one way, if you're, if you're somebody who writes, you, you can sort of journal your life, I encourage you this week, at the moment where you have that thought, 
Do I really have to? Must I? Isn't that enough? The moment you have that thought, do not beat yourself up and say, I need to be a better Christian. The moment you have that thought, chronicle that moment and bring that moment before God and say, God, okay, where is that? What is that about? Where am I living in that space? Not, how do I fix this? But what's going on in my heart that I need you to make alive right there? Somebody said after the first service that one of the things that they're going to start doing, because they don't really write, they Blackberry. And so when things happen, they're going to put a note in their Blackberry and then come back to that. Use your Blackberry, paint, sing, whatever it is that you do that helps you remember moments. Because the goal is heart change, life change. He wants you to be free and he wants you to be whole, not 20% better. The other thing I would challenge you if you're somebody who is in faith is this. It's an interesting part of that parable or metaphor where Jesus says, now, the shepherd will lay down his life for the sheep. And I'm thinking, and Steve and I had this conversation this week, and Steve said, you know, this is where the metaphor breaks down. Because if the shepherd lays down his life for the sheep, the sheep are toast. Because at that point, he's dead and the wolves are coming in. All metaphors break down. However, obviously Jesus is calling a shot about the fact that he's going to lay down his life for his sheep and rise from the dead. But the other thing I think is this. And this and Kurt and I were having this discussion and Kurt brought this out to me. I think it's very fascinating. Is that one of the things that Jesus appears to be trying to do is to create people whose hearts are like his. Not people who are better, but people whose hearts are like his, whose hearts have been shaped to genuinely care for people around them, to genuinely live connected with others. And so he says, I'm the gate, and he's going to have his life laid down for others, and he's going to raise up other good shepherds. That's you and I. He's called us to be the gate. Warehouse is a gate. It's a place where people can hear that there's a God whose heart is good and is completely for them. This is an uncommon message. And it's one that can change people's lives. And it is our calling. And it's why when push comes to shove that we exist. I'm glad that as followers of Jesus we grow in different ways. That's awesome. But in the end, when push comes to shove, we exist to be a gate so that people can have a place where they can explore whether or not there's actually a God out there who's for them. And so the other challenge I'd make to you is this. In two weeks, two weeks is Easter. And in a stunning move, we're going to talk about the resurrection on Easter. And we don't always do that, but we're going to this year. But Easter is a fascinating time in the Southeast, is it not? People feel like they should go to church, even if they believe absolutely nothing. And even if the whole time they're thinking, oh my God, I cannot believe I'm in this building listening to this. I have no idea what they're talking about, but hey, it's almost over and then I can go to lunch. I'd really like people who are outside of faith to walk into warehouse. I'm not saying there are other churches I wouldn't like them to walk into. I'm saying I like them to walk into warehouse. I would. Because for... As flawed as we are, we really want to be a gate where people can experience a relationship with Jesus. And I think through you all and through the music and through Kurt and I, the message becomes relatively clear. And I would like people to experience that. And it's actually why we're here. 
And so you are a follower of Jesus and you're a part of Warehouse. My challenge to you is in the next two weeks to be praying about and inviting people to come that day. Now I want you to invite people to come every day. I do. I mean, I've already told you, I have no hidden agenda. I'd like people who are non-faith to come into faith and have a relationship with Jesus who loves them and died for them. I like that. I think that's great. I'd like that to happen every week. Easter is a prime opportunity. There's the person maybe you've mentioned Warehouse to 12 times. And this time you say, okay, hey, it's Easter. Everybody goes to church on Easter. Why don't you come with me? And at least you won't be painfully bored by the music. And then we'll go out to lunch. People like to go out to lunch. It'll be awesome. So I want you to really give that some salt and some prayer. And don't go, yeah, yeah, okay. Look, here's the, here's the bottom line. This room right here holds 450 people. Even with those rooms on the side, it holds 450 people. And so not coincidentally, the first service holds exactly that many number of people, which means that 900 people can fill this space on Easter, not including the kids and all that who are back there, which is another 3,000. Just kidding. (laughs) Got plenty of room. Got plenty of room for you to bring your friend in here. Now, here's where I'm going to be somewhat direct with you. If when I say that, that feels uncomfortable to you, like, I don't want to do that. I don't really want to be a part of a church that is trying to get other people who are not followers of Jesus to follow him. This probably isn't a good fit for you. Really, I'll just be honest with you. Remember, we promised no hidden agendas. It's probably not a great place for you. There's a lot of churches, and I don't mean this bashing, but a church you can probably be very comfortable in, which will never make you feel as if you have any part in the mission. You can sit in the back and hang out. And Now, if you're not in faith, you can sit here and hang out until God moves you, which I hope will be today. Honestly, remember, no hidden agenda. I hope it's today. And we want you to grow. But really, if you're a follower of Jesus and you say, I don't really want to be drawing people, I don't really want to be talking to people about, I want to invite somebody to come here. This is probably not the place for you. Honestly, there are places where you can go. I'll give you a list. Which will tell you you can hang out in the back. We actually believe this stuff. We actually want people to have life. That's maybe our best trait. It's why we tore up the facility. We're in chaos here. Why? Because we actually want to make a difference in people's lives. We want homeless people to have a shower. We want kids to have the space where it's not simply childcare, but where they actually can be engaged in such a way with the number of people in a room so that they can actually grow and experience what it means to know Christ. We want people who have never come into a church and who come in with fear and trepidation, really, and thinking, what is going to happen when I enter this building? We want them to not come in and go, oh my, have you ever cleaned those carpets? And so we replace flooring upstairs. We're in process. Don't look yet. (laughs) Give us another week. We put our money there because we actually want people to experience a relationship with Christ. It's what we're about. It's the heart of our vision. I challenge you in the midst of this series to be praying about those people that you can reach out to. Why? So you'll get brownie points? No. So our church will grow bigger? No. So that they can experience a God whose heart is good and is completely for them. They can experience an uncommon love that quite honestly they'll not experience anywhere else. Other than in Christ. I don't mean anywhere else other than where else. Let's pray. Father, would you lead us? We want to put aside all of our performance trappings and then are wrapping around our own life. We see in you a picture of somebody who doesn't appear to be pretending to care about people, but who is comfortable with who you are, 
and out of who you are simply lives openly before the world around them. That is appealing in striking ways, but it is uncommon. I pray you would lead us there. I pray you would give us the courage to be people who don't simply try to improve a little bit, but who lean into our relationship with you such that we have our heart transformed from the inside out. This is what we long for. And we know because your heart is good, this is what you're seeking to do in our lives. I pray you will meet us and speak to us in this next part of our service. In Christ's name, amen.